Good morning, this is Bakes, Kevin Baker with Bakes Takes. Welcome to the podcast. This is for the week ending uh, Saturday, July 18th. And uh, number one, top 10 reasons why I invested in uranium, URNM, the ETF, and URA, the ETF. Uh, Second, fan questions and topics, one of my favorite things to do. Had a lot of great feedback from the last couple of weeks. And number three, for much needed levity, uh, family guy, because I'm childish and I like this stuff. So here we go. First off, uh, Mike, Uranium, I think we're right. We talked about this off camera uh, before we aired. I think we're right. Um, uh, I'm going to be charmingly laconic. Uh, My Tufts English professor uh, wrote that in one of my papers. I had to look it up. I wasn't that bright back then. Some would argue I'm still not. But I'm going to cut right to the chase and and have uh, uh, 10 reasons why we like Uranium. Okay. I like it. And... uh, but now, here's my disclaimer. Again, I don't like to be a, a, a lawyer here, uh, but please do and share your own due diligence. I'm just saying what I'm doing. You can come along with me if you'd like, but you have to do your own due diligence as well. So I'm showing you my work, if you will, and you tell me. Um, uh, again, this reminds me of, of oil and gas in the past, titanium, potash, where you have multi-year setups and then multi-year trends that go on for a long time. Mm. So we've been doing the show for a while. This is episode 20, I believe. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time I bought anything. I just haven't had, you know, I haven't had a risk reward setup that I really liked. I mentioned getting pumped up last week. I'm pumped up about this and I'm learning a lot and uh, 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 pretty excited. Number one reason why I like uranium and I bought uranium is the charts. Uh, these are the prettiest charts I've seen out there. Again, Mike, I mentioned this off camera. Mm-hmm. And I've also pounded this volume theme home. And look at the volume here. These blue spikes that you see up here. That's a, a new high uh, breaking above 30 on the URNM. This is the daily on 10 times normal volume into new highs. That is just a clear, clear bullish signal. And it's a very thin ETF, I think that's to the benefit of individual investors like you and I. The institutions can't come in right. and buy this 4,000 share a day trader, in my opinion. Um, here's the monthly. Obviously, this is a relatively new uh, uh, ETF launch, but it still looks pretty. Uh, and the volume is is big. And here it is, uh, the 21st, 22nd, whatever date we have. And uh, the monthly volume is going to confirm a breakout, which I think is going to last, I hope, for years. I, don't, I won't go there that thus far, but I'll go through the other reasons and you tell me. Uh, here is the Global X Uranium URA. I bought them both just because I like, I like both of the charts. There's subtle differences with them. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, this is the daily. This broke out on four times above normal volume into new highs. Uh, they own a little more Cameco as a percentage than URNM, so it appealed to me. Uh, I also like this, though, because of the long-term chart. Check out this monthly chart of URA. This is uh, started at 140, which approximates the, 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 the peak in uh, the uranium price. Maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it isn't. Uh, uh, I think it's a coincidence, but this is 10 years nine years, whatever it is, of going down. We're breaking these downtrends. I didn't make the line today. We went from 140 to 11. So 
Um, if it retraces any meaningful piece of this, we're going to make a lot of money. So let me go to my second reason, and this is where I'm learning a lot from a, from a lot of great people out there, and I want to learn more. So let's have this be interactive. Um, uh, Fukushima is a, a Japanese reactor, became flooded by a tsunami back in March of 11. Uh, the, the government understandably shut down their nuclear power uh, programs pretty dramatically. 48 reactors went down to six. Uh, demand for 25 million pounds of uranium went away, as again, understandably. And it's nine years later, the question is, is supply and demand in an imbalance? And there's a lot of evidence that it is. So number three, uh, the bear story. I always want to point out to a bear story so that we're aware of, of what could come out of uh, the woodwork. The bear story is inventory will last us years. The, the above ground uranium that's sitting on shelves in, in places and warehouses, uh, that seems unlikely. It should be depleted by 2021 by a lot of the people that I'm talking to. And so uh, it's a bear story, but I think it's one that if the bear story gets chipped away and turns into the positive, then we have further upside in the price of uranium and the uranium stocks that participate. Number four, I think it's part of the green solution versus the problem. I might be wrong about that. I don't know if this is going to be an ESG play, environmental social governance. But if it is, then I think you have a, a halo effect that gets more people inching into this space. Uh, number five, two shut-in mines, Cigar Lake and MacArthur River, uh, and others have brought down supply by 23% since 2016. So you had the demand hit in 11, you had the supply hit in 2016, which gets us to where we are currently. It's showing up in the price. You went from, and this is what commodities do. High prices solve high prices. Low prices solve low prices. And it, it and production uh, calibrates everything. But it takes time. I think it takes years. So the price peaked at 140, went down to 24. We're up to 34. And I mean in two months, we're up to 34. So something clearly is going on here. It's a question of how long the trend persists and what could mitigate or, or reverse the trend. So I'm going to be very sober about this. Number seven, it takes six to eight years to develop a new large mine. Uh, Next Gen apparently has a monstrous project in the works. It is screaming today for reasons I don't know. I, I was in the car, so I couldn't read anything. Um, and apparently it takes two years to convert and enrich uranium into fuel Point is, it's going to be, this is a long-term trend, and I like long-term trends where we don't have to portnoy this and stare at a screen 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day and try and, and grab nickels in, in, in front of uh, steamrollers. So if we're right on this, this is going to be something that we can talk about for two years, three years, and hopefully take big profits at some point down the road. Uh, you need $70, the industry needs $70 to incentivize future production, and this is a long-term contract business. So the chemicals of the world sell to the nuclear power plant owners, and they're under long-term contracts. And in order for them to kick back production to, to higher levels, they're going to need to lock in 
higher prices with escalators to compensate that for the for the risk that they've taken, especially after suffering from the decline in prices that we've seen over these years. Number nine, nuclear reactors are up. Uh, uh, pr- uh, uh, the number of reactors that are running are, are the highest in 25 years. I That's a surprise to me. I bet you it's a surprise to many of you. I still go back to the Saturday Night Live skit, uh, Mike, where... where um, Garrett Morris kisses Dan Aykroyd. That's it. Um, it's 40 years, and it still uh, he, uh, sticks in my mind. The nuclear reactor, Three Mile Island, that was 79, and uh, that's how long these things persist. Uh, so demand looks like it's creeping up 1.5%, 2% a year for uranium to feed the reactors. And number 10, I mentioned the charts, right, Mike? Okay. Uh, so here's my my big take on, on uh, uranium thus far. The battleship has turned. Uh, I'm always looking for data points and insights. So this is the beginning of this this research process. But I own 10% in URNM, 10% in URA, and uh, I pick those reasons, those points for a reason. Again, I'm doing this. You don't have to do anything. I'm not telling you to do anything. You follow along with the logic and do with it with your your own big boy and big girl money. Um, I like the 10% so that if I have a 20% stop loss, I lose 2% of the portfolio. I've got 98% to fight another day. That's what I like. So do that what you will. Uh, please send me your three most bullish points and, and work on it. The three bearish points. Because there always are bear stories. And I want to uh, know what tigers are, are, are rustling in the brush that I have to be prepared for for fight or flight. So... Um, there's going to be a new theme next week. Haven't really picked it yet, but uh, uh, and, and bring suggestions, points, comments, complaints, criticisms. I can handle it. And uh, but let's see if if this uranium story works out for all of our benefits for a long, long time. So, uh, keeping with that, this is the Bakes Take podcast of the week. Uh, Azarius Management is there are two very thoughtful guys. Darren Heitman, Chris Gillespie, they have a Spotify uh, podcast. It's not on Apple, so go to Spotify. Uh, this is the number four podcast in the series, uh, and they covered this week their bullish inventory thesis, which I mentioned as part of the bear stories of my 10. Quick segue. In the, in the September presentation I made, and I, I told people, or told, I told people how I uh, make a buy decision. And what I always did was was have a David Letterman top 10 list. Sometimes the number changed. But basically, top 10 reasons why you bought a stock, wrote them down, and then kept checking on that as time went on. And when two or three or four of those points weakened, then I would really do some soul searching. Now, obviously, I'm looking at the chart, too, and that really makes me do some some searching. But if, if you have a bullish thesis and all of a sudden three or four of your bullish points are faltering, you got to start uh, at least asking more questions and then maybe deploying my cell discipline, which I've talked about in the past. Okay, that's a long segue, actually. So... Um, uh, the industry uh, apparently consumes 200 million pounds of uranium a year. It takes two years to convert and enrich. Uh, inventory supposedly is 1.4 billion pounds. This is from Darren and Chris, honest people. But again, it's an opaque industry. You don't really know, you know what's in, in Russia and Kazakhstan, etc. So this is the best uh, work that, that, that they've done thus far. Uh, but again, it's playing out in price. So 
the market is 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 voting pretty handily. Uh, so apparently, there's five years of safety stock. The the uh, March 11th Fujizawa, Fuj, sorry Fujishima Fukushima. Um, uh, took out 25 million pounds, and so it took, you know, seven years of grinding to work off that 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 excess supply that was that was out there that was you know not being uh, consumed by the power plants. Uh, now, Cameco and and um, uh, how am I going to pronounce this? Kazadamprom. I think I have that right because I know a lot of you guys gave me a hard time last time. I'm very sensitive, so you got to be careful. Um, uh, COVID has now taken 45 million extra pounds of production out of the system. And now, uh, we're going to need 25 million pounds starting next year. Uh, so over the next 12 months, we're going to be out of mobile inventory, according to Darren, according to Chris, according to Azarius. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, 140 was the peak. So there's a, there's a history here of when the industry is humming, Higher prices are are uh, uh, taken by the by the nuclear power industry readily. Uh, the companies uh, that I just mentioned, Cigar Lake and MacArthur, uh, uh, their projects, Cigar Lake and MacArthur uh, mines, they're not coming back online until uranium is forty fifty bucks, according to them public statements from what I understand. So do with that what you will. Again, do your own due diligence and share your own due diligence because I'd love to hear where I'm right. I'd love to hear where I'm wrong. And I like to kick up some dust and uh, and let's have some fun. Okay. Um, Mike, fan mail keeps coming in. It is so cool. I do share this with you during the week. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, it, it's really neat to see where they, I think we've hit a chord. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and this is from Murph in New York, who who is a, a great guy. I like him a lot. Okay, a friend of my son Jack. Um, but he asked me, "What makes you choose one ETF over another if they track the same thing?" And he pointed out to SPY, VOO, which is a Vanguard, and IVV, which I think is Invesco's. I think I have that right. And these all track the S and P. And so he mentioned the expense ratio. Uh, they go from a high of 0.095 to 0.03. I mean, it, it, it's it's a rounding error. It just if you if you're in stocks, you want to make six, seven, eight percent a year. Obviously, you want to make more, but that's what stocks have historically returned. And the difference in expense ratios is de minimis. The fee compression that the industry is going through, the compression uh, of fees that the uh, uh, you know the competition for assets is so fierce, and the scale that the the vanguards of the world have, the ETF costs are coming down virtually everywhere. Now, uh, Murph, you asked about liquidity. Uh, yeah, and as a tiebreaker, I want to be in the most liquid one because if I'm wrong, I want to get out as easily as possible. Uh, when I was managing money, I never owned m- more than 10% of average daily volume, and that was very, very rare, very rare. As an individual investor, you're never going to come up to that, I, I don't think. So uh, the liquidity of the SPY, to me, justifies the uh, higher expense ratio and uh, again, uh, you know, thank you for for uh, for for chiming in. I really appreciate it. Um, it, it my, here's my point. Um, 
don't focus on fees so much unless they're egregious. If you see anything over, you know, 100 basis points, then I'd get upset. But we're here to make some money, and I'm willing to pay people to go out and uh, in, invest in on foreign markets, diversify the portfolio, because I don't want to do it. So as Nike says, just do it. Uh, Charlie from Pennsylvania, uh, he said, thanks for the reading list and the shout out. Uh, as always, I appreciated this week's podcast video and I'm looking forward to next week's. Well, here we are, Charlie. Welcome back. Um, with regards to website suggestion, one thing I find most financial news outlets fail to prioritize and explain well is the key economic data. This is Charlie's email to me that gets released on a quarterly, monthly, or even weekly basis. Machine tool orders, unemployment claims, ADP payroll data. So, uh, Charlie, I know you're 21, 22 years old. So the fact that you know that these are the, are the, the, the data points that come out, kudos to you. Um, oh, He's asking about implications for the financial markets, various sectors. Uh, I hope it's valuable. Uh, and Charlie says they, these seem to have a lot of impacts on different things, and uh, they don't get enough media coverage. All right, here we go. Uh, this is my bake's take. For bonds and fixed income, I think that these economic, the economic data matters a fair amount because what, what seems to happen is that data shows up and, and talks about is there slack in the economy that's being soaked up or is is there a slack that's being exacerbated by COVID, et cetera. And so anything that suggests the economy is slowing makes bond yields go down, bond prices go up, uh, especially the unemployment numbers recently, for example. the uh, For stocks, so... For bonds and fixed income, I think they have importance. I've never managed bonds or fixed income to any great extent, so I've never really looked and, and waited with bated breath for the unemployment number or, or payrolls or machine orders or anything like that because for stocks, I've never seen anyone profit from taking the economic data from 10,000 feet to get down to the weeds of stock selection and make money from that. So I listen to it, I pay attention to it, but my focus is always how do we make money and profit from this, and I haven't found a way to do that with the big economic data that comes out. So I will talk about it when it's you know really remarkable and impactful, but there's no economic data that came up and said, boy, let's go look at uranium, as a for, exa for, as a for instance. So you tell me where I'm wrong, and if you could point to somebody who's taken an economic data macro approach and gotten down into, into you know, uh, making significant money in stocks, I am all ears. All right, this is Bobby from Virginia. He's my son. I love the kid. Um, and he asked about how, build, how to build a, a diversified portfolio. And, uh, uh you know, and I thought I covered this, um, uh, or at least I've talked about this over the kitchen table so many times, but uh, it's, it's obviously come up with, with some of his friends. Um, here's my take. It dovetails with, with Murph's question and uh, the fact uh, that uh, I think it makes sense to have a bedrock of the S&P 500, and I also would say a rest-of-world portfolio. Okay, so... If you have a 401k or and, and, and or, or an IRA, I would max those out because it just grows tax-free and it makes a tremendous amount of sense. You buy the S&P, which costs next to nothing, the SPY in this case. It's ridiculously liquid and uh, automatically every month 
you buy a little bit more. If it goes up, great. If your dollar cost average down, so be it. This is long-term money, especially for 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds. So uh, I would have that. I also think that Americans don't have enough outside of the U.S. And uh, I don't have a specific name. I do like the Davis family of funds, only from a podcast that I listened to where I thought he was extremely thoughtful. So I have not gone into the weeds of uh, their performance which funds are the best or anything like that. So for this argument, I would diversify, call it 50% in the U.S., 50% rest of the world, and then outside of the retirement plan, come to us. And instead of Portnoy, I think we do a pretty good job of explaining what we do and uh, the rationale and have some feedback going back and forth, and we'll see how that goes. So after you do the the half S&P, oh, by the way, the S&P, that's 500 stocks. Sometimes it's a little bit less because of acquisitions and so forth. But you're diversified. Frankly, you're diversified at 30 stocks, according to academic research that I follow. So at 500, you're diversified. I mean, you, you're, it's everything from, from real estate to, to oil and gas to semiconductors to biotech. You're diversified. And it takes a click of a button that is virtually costless. So... Getting a diversified portfolio is pretty easy. And then outside of that, I want you to come to me and we'll talk about things like uranium because I listen to virtually every podcast that's out there that covers investing. No one's talking about uranium except yours truly. So maybe that makes me an idiot. I don't think it does for the reasons that I just outlined. Uh, By the way, ladies, the boys are hogging the mic as far as questions and topics, and I'd like to have you chime in. So come on. Um... Jack, my other son, my younger son, asked, asked about uh, COVID trials and uh, uh, phase one versus phase two uh, versus phase three. And COVID is, has, you know, altered the rules substantially. Obviously, everything is being streamlined and, and accelerated. Um, uh, phase one, it's usually 20 to 100 healthy volunteers uh, 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 or people that have the, the disease or condition, and the length of study is, is several months. Okay, so let's say that's three months, okay? That's probably accelerated with all the things that, were, that are going on with COVID, but uh, those are the numbers. So 20 to 100 patients, healthy or sick, and it's several months, and they, and they set up safety and dosage guidelines in, in phase one. Approximately 70% of the drugs get through that and then go on to phase two up to several hundred people with the disease and condition. So it's obviously a higher bar. Uh, And then these trials take several months to two years to enroll, administer the drug, determine the efficacy and the side effects, and the method of administration and dose in a lot of cases. And so this is several months to two years. So let's say that's another three months. So we've gone through phase one and phase two in a normal world. That's six months so far. Approximately a third of the drugs make it through phase two into phase three. Now you're talking 300 to 3,000 volunteers who have the disease and it takes one to four years. So I'm taking the underside of all these things and it's now 18 months, best case scenario, which is why, okay, phase three is when is, is the data where you, you have a dose, you have a, a method of administration and you uh, uh, determine efficacy and adverse reactions, and you take these data, if they're, if they're statistically significant, and you file them with the FDA, and hopefully they approve them. So approximately 25 to 30% uh, 
uh, of drugs gets to phase four, where it's it's monitoring, you know, the 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 um, in the case of COVID, millions of patients that are going to be taking this drug. It sounds like annually from from data that I heard today. So, I've been looking at at the the, the usual uh, timeline for trials. It's 18 months to go from a standing, under the best case circumstance, 18 months to get to an approved drugs. And that is fast. It's, it's often much, much longer than that. Now, with COVID, they're relaxing the rules a lot and, and uh, accelerating everything. So apparently, it's by the end of the year. If Fauci says it, I tend to believe it. If anybody else says it, I kind of throw a, a flag on the play. So they're really pushing this hard and, frankly, relaxing a, a, a lot of usual standards in order to get this done. So that's phase one, two, and three. I hope that's helpful. And if it's not, you tell me and um, we'll talk about it. Um, next segment, Bakes Take uh, uh, Chart Mania and Tweets of the Week. Here's silver. And it's not dissimilar from, uh, uh, from uranium. Uh, big Peak uh, back in 2010, 2011, and a great base that goes out here to, to now. It's hitting new highs today. Um, it, it looks extended to me short term, but uh, with all the money printing that's going on and the great action in gold, it, it's a very good possibility that silver is going to retrace a lot of this big move. So as we go from, call it, 22 23 right now could it get close to the peaks of 40 50 bucks down the road could it could uh i i feel like it's, it's gone too far too fast for now but i'm watching it and i'm alert for a pullback and i'd love to again uh give me your thoughts complaints and and data points that i'm missing uh next bakes take reporters of the week and harry in houston this goes out to you uh uh and uh, I, I really recommend The Economist. And again, I wish they would put the authors of the articles in there. They don't too often. Um, but this is the end of the Arab world's oil age is nigh. Uh, their budgets don't add up anymore. Algeria needs the price of crude, of Brent crude, uh, to rise to $157 a barrel. Uh, Oman needs it to hit 87 to meet their budget needs. No Arab oil except for, for Qatar can balance its books at the current price around $40. And so some are taking drastic steps. In May, the Algerian government said it would slice its spending in half. The new prime minister of Iraq, one of the world's largest oil producers, wants to take an axe to government salaries. That's going to be very, very unpopular. Uh, Oman, that's my editorializing. Oman is struggling to borrow after credit agencies listed its debt as junk. Kuwait's, uh, Kuwait's deficit could hit 40% of GDP, the highest level in the world. So all of these commodities have ripple effects. We're blessed here in the U.S. with a diversified economy where no one commodity really you know, whacks us too severely as a nation. In the case of the Middle East, it's a different world. So don't be fooled. Back to the economists. The world's economies are, are moving away from fossil fuels albeit incrementally, my editorializing, uh, oversupply and, and the increasing competitiveness of cleaner energy sources means that oil may stay cheap for the foreseeable future. The recent turmoil in oil markets is not an aberration. It is a glimpse of the future. 
The world is into an era of low prices, and no region will be more affected than the Middle East and North Africa. My editorializing again, nuclear power sounds better and better and better given these scenarios that are, are, uh, are playing out. There's some great charts in here. Uh, if you're listening to this, I, I urge you to go to the YouTube channel where we put all our, our charts up there, and it shows the, the impact that, that declining oil has had on the Middle East countries and taking it a little bit further, my extrapolation is this tends to cause social unrest, civil unrest, anger, and that could lead to to flare-ups in oil production down the road. I'm not, I'm not following it all that closely just yet, but uh, when people have their, their, uh, the government cut spending as dramatically as is going on, people get angry. So we'll see how this plays out. It's something to watch. And uh, I know you didn't ask for that, Harry, but I hope it helps. This is kind of cool. This is just a chart of, of where the oil is and where it comes from. And I just think it's, it's a great visual representation. This is why I like charts so much and my YouTube channel so much because a picture is worth a thousand words. I think a video is worth a million. And he, here is, you like that, Mike? Uh, he, here's where the oil comes from. And uh, most of us couldn't find this on a map. And uh, I like to put this out for you so that if it goes from page 19 of the journal to page one, you're not as shocked as your peers may be. So there you go. Uh, please subscribe, review, and share my Bakes Takes podcast on Apple, Spotify, your preferred platform. Please also subscribe to my Bakes Takes YouTube channel. The audio is the same, but the charts that I reference are on the screen. Follow us on Twitter at BakesTakes underscore and other social media. Please use your voice memo app. Tape your questions and email to bakes at bakestakespodcast.com or write if you prefer. I'll keep you anonymous if you'd like. Thank you for listening. Mike Wilson is my producer. Have a great week. Much needed levity. Uh, family guy, Big Bang Theory. Uh, it is absolutely hilarious. So please go to the show notes, hit the link. And uh, I think you'll, you'll get some, uh, some much-needed laughs of this. See you next week. Take care. Bye now. <laughs>